As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you feel a shiver up your spine from fear? Yes, it's another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind. Amp up your imagination and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Phantom Isle by Ella Scrimsour. Sheila Carrar had wandered delightedly over Rosalind Chapel. She had tenderly touched the apprentice pillar, had feasted her eyes on the legendary carvings, had listened to the guide's tuneful voice as he told the story of the chapel and of the hate and violence that had been fostered there. She went down the narrow roadway with the wonder of the pastel in her heart. She was a very radiant Sheila. Her first cases had been so successful that she had many minor calls made upon her, which, though they had all proved uninteresting, had at least been the ones that brought money to her pocket. And now she was spending a few days at Roslyn and reveling in the beauties of the famous chapel. A telegram was waiting for her when she reached the hotel. She opened it tremulously. She hoped it was from Staverdale Hartland. She had not seen him since the memorable day he had kissed her farewell, as the train was on the point of steaming out of Bender Lock Station. It had been redirected from her Edinburgh rooms. It ran. Can you see me tomorrow? Urgent. Lady Menzies recommends Murdoch Caledonian Hotel, Princess Street. The name was unfamiliar, and she felt disappointed. She had so hoped it was from Staverdale. Resting undertaking no cases she wired but early next day there was another telegram for her 
Motoring Rosalind immediately. Please see me and hear details. Most urgent, Murdoch. Sheila was vexed. She had told her landlady to give no one her address, and now a stranger was coming to worry her. She wanted a rest badly, but her better nature prevailed, and she waited in for her visitor. About twelve, a card was brought to her. Mrs. Murdoch, Aknat Dindok, Sky. Mrs. Murdoch proved to be a prematurely aged woman. Her hair was white, and her face lined and wrinkled, but her eyes, bright and piercing, gave lie to the thought that proclaimed her old. "'Miss Carrar, she said brokenly, "'I am in such trouble. Do forgive me for intruding upon you, but I feel that you are the only one that can help me.' Her distress was so real that Sheila was touched. "'Sit down by the fire and tell me what was your trouble, and I will promise to help you if I can.' Mrs. Murdoch remained silent a moment, and then, "'It all seems so little. When I try and put it into words,' she began, but apologetically, "'At the bottom of my heart I feel that there is something wrong. A year ago Elspeth, my only daughter and child, returned from the continent, where she had been at a finishing school. She came back a blithe, heartsome lassie, full of fun, loving, kind. Her first season was a brilliant success.' She became engaged to the Duke of Cremont's eldest son, and the two were inseparable. It was a most desirable match in every way. They were both young, and had wealth and love to help them. Their marriage was to have taken place at the new year. Then the engagement is broken, asked Sheila. Yes, Miss Carrar. Two months ago, Elspeth went out sailing. It was quite a usual thing for her to do, but she came back inexplicably changed. She seemed no longer a girl but a discontented woman, old before her time, peevish, miserable. I thought she was sickening for some illness, but she became very irritable when I suggested she should go to bed. Well, from that moment she has never been the same. Next day she was up at dawn and spent the whole of it in her little sailing boat. The days passed. She would hardly speak to me, and she spent her whole time on the sea. Then I received a broken-hearted letter from the young Marquis of Mavoir. Her fiancé? Mrs. Murdoch nodded. Elspeth had written to him, breaking off her engagement. It was done without my knowledge, so you will understand that the news came as a great shock. I wired Cedric to come to us at once. He had a very stormy interview with Elspeth. She gave him no reason for her change. Simply refused to marry him, that was all. Cedric was broken-hearted and left the same day for London. I've not heard from him since. If she no longer cared for him, suggested Sheila. "'Don't think I'm a mercenary, matchmaking mother, Miss Carrar,' said Mrs. Murdoch. "'I only want my daughter to marry for love, and it was because I felt she really cared for Cedric, and he for her, that I was anxious for the union. Two days ago my daughter told me quite casually that she was to be married on her twenty-first birthday.' "'And that is? Next Friday week.' "'And you don't approve?' Miss Carrar, this is the real source of my trouble. She told me she's to marry Malcolm McLaurie, Laird of Tathgart Isle. Well, there is no Laird of Tathgart now. This is where I want your aid. The last of the McLauries was foully murdered in 1745 by the chief of the Clan Murdoch, our clan. As far as I know, there is no living McLaurie left. Yet my daughter avows that she's going to marry the chief. Now do you understand my fears? I think so, said Sheila. Where does your daughter meet this, this man? Oh, Tathgart Isle. Where is that? About eight and a half miles from us, to the north. How did the last McLaurie die? asked Sheila. Old Malcolm McLaurie was mortally wounded at Culloden, continued Mrs. Murdoch, and his only son, young Malcolm, fled with the prince to the hills. After a great deal of suffering and privation, they reached the coast in safety and eventually gained Tathgart Isle. A traitor, however, was in their ranks. Wolf Murdoch, chief of the clan, left the island secretly and, for a price, gave information to the English general. He and a boatload of redcoats made their way to the isle, but a faithful ghillie gave the alarm and the prince and his retinue escaped to Skye. When the English soldiers landed, headed by the wolf, they found the young chieftain at dinner with his sisters alone. The castle was ransacked, but no trace of the fugitive was found. Young McLaurie denied all knowledge of the prince. 
there had been long enmity between the two houses, and in his baffled rage, Wolf Mordock drew his sword and killed the elder girl in front of her brother and sister. Mad with grief and anger, McClory fell upon the Murdock, but a score of soldiers overpowered him. Then the wolf tore the living sister from the body of the dead one, and in cold blood murdered her before her brother's eyes. How horrible! Not content with that, for now the pent-up hatred and petty jealousies of a rival clan were let loose. Young Tathcart was forced to witness the burning of his home and his crops. He saw his servants and clansmen slaughtered, and when his home had been reduced to ruins, he was hanged upon his own castle walls. That is the history of the last McLory, Miss Carrar. There have been none since. And yet your daughter's to marry McLory? Yes, she told me he was Malcolm McLory, Laird of Tathgart, and Earl of the Keldon Isles. It is the very title that lapsed in forty-five. And she says her wedding day is fixed? Yes, Friday week. Then we have a clear ten days before us. May I return with you to Akna Dindak? said she the briskly. Thank you, oh, thank you, said the broken-hearted mother. The journey was not eventful. They crossed from Malag on the mainland to Armandale and Skye. The mailboat was rather cheerless, and Sheila, tired and cold, was glad to wrap herself cozily up in fur rugs in the Rolls-Royce that was waiting for them at the pierhead. When they arrived at the house, Mrs. Murdoch asked at once for Elspeth. She is in her room, madam, said the servant. She has not been out all day. A look of relief passed over the mother's face. Dinner will be served in half an hour, madam, went on the servant. Thank you. That will give us plenty of time, Miss Carrar. We won't dress tonight. I'm sure we are both too tired. The gong sounded and Sheila made her way to the sitting room, and then on to the dining room. Mrs. Murdoch was waiting for her excitedly. I've persuaded Elspeth to have dinner with us. I told her you were going to stay with us for a little. I never mentioned the real reason, of course, but she showed no curiosity. That moment the door opened, and Elspeth Murdoch entered. She was a very sweet-looking girl of the ethereal type, pale, fair-haired and petite. She gave one the impression that a sudden gust of wind would blow her away, yet Sheila knew she was athletic and could handle a yacht with the ease of a man. Elspeth, this is Miss Carrar. How do you do? How do you do? The girl talked brightly throughout the meal, but Sheila noticed the nervous twitching of her hands and the artificial gaiety of her manner. At times, too, she looked away into the distance and seemed hardly to be aware of her surroundings. They made their way into the drawing room, but at the threshold she halted. I won't have any coffee, thank you. Good night, Miss Carrar. Good night, mother. Sheila felt unable to pierce the veil of mystery that hung over Elspeth Murdoch's love story. That she was engaged to a man who had been hanged nearly two hundred years ago was absurd, yet who was the mysterious stranger she had fallen in love with? Why had her whole nature changed? Was it someone impersonating the McLory, or was it something far worse, the visitation of the dead to the living for the purpose of revenge? Elspeth was absent in her yacht all the next day, but as the twilight deepened, the watchers caught the glint of a sail coming round the furthermost corner of the bay, and then a few seconds later the pretty little craft drew close in, was beached neatly, and a moment later Elspeth vaulted out onto dry silver sand. Elspeth, said her mother wistfully, we came down to meet you. The girl passed a hand across her brow wearily. I'm sorry you troubled, mother, she said. You're very late, hazarded the unhappy woman. I'm sorry, mother, but Malcolm kept me later than usual. The castle is being made ready for the festival. The island is quite gay, and the servants are already making preparations for the wedding banquet. My dear, my dear, said her mother brokenly, don't be foolish. Why, you know there is no castle now. It was demolished long ago. As a child, you played among the ruins. A softer tone crept into the girl's voice. You want me to be happy, mother, yet you deny me my love. You question the fidelity of my lover, almost his reality. Why, he has bidden three hundred guests to our wedding. All his clansmen will welcome me, a Murdoch, as his bride. The old feud is broken. No longer will Murdoch fight McLory or McLory and Murdoch. Love has healed the breach. Love has conquered all. Won't you bring the... the McLory to see me, dearie? A shadow passed over the girl's face. He won't come, mother. He bids you to the marriage feast. On that joyous day, he says, all old scores will forever be wiped out. 
By giving myself in marriage to him, I shall obliterate a thousandfold the injuries that my ancestors did to his. May I come over to the island with you tomorrow, Miss Murdoch? asked Sheila. The girl trembled violently. No, 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 she cried. I can take no one until my bridal day. It is his wish. Oh, how happy I am. I love him so. I love him so. Then suddenly her mood changed. Once more she was hard, callous. A woman had taken the place of a young girl. I am sorry you bothered to meet me, mother. I am going straight to my room now. Flora will bring me my supper on a tray. And she walked quickly away. I am going to the island tomorrow, said Sheila determinedly. Is it possible to hire a little motorboat anywhere? Yes, old Sandy Black has one. Is it safe to go alone? If it is a fairly calm day, yes. But what if Elspeth sees you? I shall start at sunrise, before she is up. There is only one safe landing, in a little bay under the shadow of the castle ruins. Next morning Sheila started alone on her adventure. She saw Tathgart in the distance, hazy in the morning mist. As the sun rose, the island loomed out quite distinctly. The bay was easy to find, and she made the little boat safe, where it lay hidden behind a rugged rock. The island was even more barren than she had anticipated, and of the old castle practically nothing remained. One wall only stood sentinel at the cliff's edge. The remainder had been swallowed up by time. There were high cliffs all around, but the top of the island was a barren plateau, with not a bush behind which to hide. She walked carefully around the little place, but could find not the slightest sign of life. Even the seabirds seemed to have neglected it, and made their homes elsewhere. As she reached the base, she caught sight of the mermaid, Elspeth's little white craft. It was quite close in, and instinctively she flung herself down flat upon the ground. And then the scene changed. The whole island seemed to become full of life. Two stalwart men in kilts leapt knee-deep in the water and drew the little boat high on the beach. A tall man with flowing locks and a long, straggling beard came towards the boat. Elspeth gave a cry of joy and held out her arms invitingly. He lifted her out of the boat and held her close in an embrace. Elspeth gave herself up to the delight of his presence and buried her head on his shoulder. The man raised his head and looked at the serving men who were near, and Sheila shuddered at his malignant expression. "'Malcolm, Malcolm, you love me?' cried the girl, and for answer the man kissed her hair, her eyes, her lips. But Sheila shivered, for the embrace seemed to her to signify a fierce hatred instead of love. Then the man drew roughly away, and the two walked up the steep incline towards the castle. Sheila gazed in amazement at the scene. No longer was the ruined wall standing swaying at the cliff's edge, the piteous remnant of a glory that had gone. In its place a giant castle stood, a castle with smoke curling from its chimneys, and one that bore sign of habitation. The two passed close to Sheila, and she followed them. A drawbridge was lowered, and although a sentry was posted at the porticos, he gave no challenge when Sheila walked in. By this time she scarcely realized the phenomena she was witnessing. Through corridors and passages she wandered, through gaunt rooms with bare stone walls, now through tapestried apartments and bedchambers hung with silk. But although servants were continually passing her, although in the distance she saw soldiers and guests, the sporting in the gloom no sound was made. The everyday life was being carried on, yet there was not the slightest noise. In the kitchen she saw a whole ox roasting before a blazing fire, yet when she put her hand near the blaze no warmth came from it, and the contact seemed to chill her. Then the realization came upon her suddenly that the whole castle had been destroyed long ago. Where then was she? A woman in a mob cap and a kirtle of green hurried past her carrying a tray of crockery. Sheila called to her, but the woman made no answer. It was as though she had not heard her voice. She ran from the kitchen to the wide stairs. Men in highland dress with claymore bare stood on either side of it, but they seemed not to see her as she sped past them. In a large apartment at the top of the stairs she caught a glimpse of Elspeth and her lover. Two girls were with them, girls with flowing hair and robed in white, but again the appalling hatred and their expression terrified her. Elspeth bent to kiss the elder girl, and as she did so Sheila cried out, Oh, don't, don't! Then everything seemed to darken, and when she looked round again, she found she was standing in front of the old castle wall. The sun was sinking, and already Elspeth was halfway to the mainland in her yacht. Shuddering slightly, Sheila went swiftly down to the little bay to the motorboat, and soon had left the uncanny island far behind her. 
What had she seen? Was it the ghostly past come to life again? Had the dying hatred of the McLaurys existed through death itself? And would their curse be visited on the last spare daughter of the Murdochs? The thought was horrible. Well, asked Mrs. Murdoch eagerly when she saw Sheila. You are right, Mrs. Murdoch. There is an evil influence at work, and I hardly know how we can combat it. She told the story of her visit, and Mrs. Murdoch was incredulous. Yes, went on Sheila, your daughter's lover is just a phantom lover, with a phantom home and phantom retinue. If you went to Tathcart, you would probably see nothing. I'm psychic. The wonders of the supernatural are often revealed to me. In this case, I saw eye to eye with Elspeth. I entered the castle in a negative state of mind. I was excited and inquisitive. I hardly realized what I was doing. My presence had no effect on the supernatural element there. They took no notice of me at all until they felt my hostility. When I saw Elspeth bent to kiss that horrible malignant face, I tried to prevent her, and I succeeded. The whole scene vanished. It was not my actual words which caused it, but my will opposing the wills of the evil spirits. It's easy now to explain everything. Throughout the ages, he has no doubt haunted that isle that was once his pride and joy. He has concentrated all his power of thought on the last Murdoch. His will power has drawn her to the island, has made her see the castle as it was in 1745, has caused her to give her heart to him, a phantom, as a fitting vengeance for the wrongs he suffered at the hands of a Murdoch. And now he in his turn is weaving a diabolical plot in which he will destroy the heiress to the Murdoch estates. He in turn will wipe out the last remaining Murdoch in a hideous marriage ceremony in which the living is united to the dead. He will slay his bride. Don't, don't, cried the distressed mother. It can't be true. It is true, said Sheila grimly. His object is to wipe out the Murdochs, and I intend to prevent him. How? How? Sheila shook her head. I don't know. I must think, think. Mother, said Elspeth late in the evening, I am not going to Tathcart again until my wedding day. My wedding robe is only half completed, and my lover wishes me to be handsomely arrayed. I must work hard, hard. What are you using for your wedding dress? asked her mother. Why, the old white satin dress belonging to Lady Elspeth, mother. It is too big for me. It is difficult to make it fit. Mrs. Murdoch gave a cry of horror. It was the wedding dress that had been worn by the bride of Wolf Murdoch, the slaughterer of the McLory. It had been preserved through the ages for this. Every day during that last week, Sheila visited the island, and once Mrs. Murdoch herself went with her. They saw no psychic demonstration, heard no sound of ghostly laughter, felt no uncanny presence. The wedding morning arrived at last, and Sheila interviewed the servants and begged them to humor Miss Elspeth. She explained that she was not well and must not be thwarted. Elspeth came down the stairs. She had not altered the style of her dress, and she looked like an old painting that had come to life. She had left her hair unbound, and it hung in a rippling cascade down to her waist. She had caught her veil demurely round her face, and it looked like an old-fashioned mob cap. In her arms she carried a huge branch of purple heather. Heather had been gathered some months before, and was now dry and withered. Its color faded, its beauty gone. She insisted on navigating the yacht herself, but was strangely silent. They reached the little bay in safety, and Sheila prayed that she might be guided in her actions. She was extremely nervous and highly strung, indeed. The only member of the little party that seemed to be at all composed was Elspeth herself. Throughout the scenes that followed, Mrs. Murdoch saw nothing but the gaunt island with its ruins, and her two companions heard nothing but the whining moan of the wind, the lashing of the waves, and the voices of her two companions, felt nothing but the bleakness of a raw November day. But all the same she nearly fainted with terror, terror of scenes that were not visible to her, yet which she knew were being enacted beneath her very eyes. Don't come too close, whispered Sheila to Mrs. Murdoch, and don't interfere at all, no matter what happens. Elspeth seemed to forget the two who had brought her to the isle, and boldly walked up the steep incline alone. Sheila followed closely, and again she saw the phantom castle, and again she crossed the phantom drawbridge. Two girls in white came towards the bride. Sheila gazed at them in horror. She recognized them to be the murdered sisters of the McLory. Their faces were white and lifeless, their eyes lacked luster, and the expression of unholy loathing frightened her. Elspeth seemed to be in a trance, and noticing nothing 
walked by their side. They led her into a large tapestry hall, where the bridegroom awaited her, a bridegroom dressed in mourning, a bridegroom whose face was livid and discolored, whose eyes bulged from their sockets, whose tongue swollen and hideous projected from his mouth, a bridegroom who bore in his face the signs of having met his death by strangulation. Yes, the McGlory had been hanged in 1745. The hall was full of guests, but their clothing was rotten and worn, and their faces were those of dead men. Slowly a priest walked up the great hall, a priest with the face of a skull, a priest with fleshless fingers and with vestments that covered a skeleton body. The ghastly ceremony had commenced. The living was being united to the dead. For a moment only Sheila hesitated. The sepulchral tones came distinctly on her ear. Wilt thou take this woman to be thy wedded wife? Her mind was made up. Swiftly she crossed the hall and flung her arm protectively round Elspeth. The girl made a movement towards the bridegroom. Malcolm, my love, she murmured. In the name of God, I command you. Go, cried Sheila. She concentrated every ounce of willpower she possessed upon the phantoms. The brother and two sisters beat at her with long bony fingers. The priest laughed hollowly. The guests grew blurred and vanished. Go, go, she cried vehemently, still with her arms tightly around the now senseless Elspeth. The priest vanished, the castle walls were gone, but the hatred of the McLaurys remained. It was will against will, the will of the living against the will of the dead, but she was the strongest in that unholy contest. First she saw one sister, then the other, fade away, but still the McLaurie remained. She was conscious now of only one thing, she must defeat him. Once that was done, he would vanish, to return no more. The maddened spirit loomed upon her. He seemed to envelop her. His breath was fetid and choked her. He uttered maniacal cries of thwarted rage and hatred, but her eyes met his fearlessly. In the name of Christ, go, she cried. Her breath was coming fast, and the sweat was pouring off her, the result of the mental strain she was undergoing. The victory was nearly won. The form of the dead MacLory was growing fainter. She felt his demonical hatred less intense, and even as he vanished, she laid Elspeth on the ground and fell, exhausted by her side. Elspeth was still sleeping when she was carried from the yacht to the house. Gently, she was undressed and put to bed. "'There are a lot of red marks on her frock,' said Mrs. Murdoch. "'They look like blood. Do you know what it can be, Miss Carrar?' But Sheila shook her head. "'Some stain from the ground, I expect,' she said quietly. "'That's all.' The details of the horrible scene would never pass her lips. Elspeth slept the round of the clock, and when she woke, all memory of the past few months had left her. She had not the slightest recollection of the part she had played. She greeted Sheila shyly as if she had never seen her before, and Sheila was well content. A few weeks later, Sheila read the following in the Scotsman. The marriage which was arranged between the Marquis of Marvoir, the Duke of Cremont's sons and heir, and Miss Elspeth Murdoch, only daughter of the late Murdoch of Murdoch, and Mrs. Murdoch of Acna Dingdoch. Sky will take place on the 18th at Armandale, Sky. Owing to the recent illness of the bride-elect, their ceremony will be extremely quiet one, only the nearest relatives being present. The Wrath of Fergus McGinty by Ellis Grimsour Five years had nearly passed since Sheila Carrar had taken up her strange occupation. They had been years full of incident, life, success, and they had been years of love. Love mainly unspoken, it is true, but she knew that Staverdale Hartland's very life was hers, and she reveled in the thought, and now she had completed her task. Ken Craig was once more her own. Every debt was paid, and although her bank account was small, her heart was light. She was staying with Dr. and Mrs. Commerce at their Glasgow house for a short holiday, and Staverdale was coming on the morrow. She had written him a quaint, prim little note in which she told him her news, and now— well, she was glad she was on such terms with the calmers that he could invite himself to their home. She leant back in the depths of an armchair and surrendered herself to the delight of a favorite author. She was glad she had no case on hand, for she was worn out with the strain of her psychic investigations, and she felt she needed a rest. Motherly Mrs. Calmers was looking after her and fussing, and the change was a joy to the sensitive girl. The door opened, and she looked up. A man entered, a man with white hair and a flowing white beard. His air was a little old-fashioned, his kilt of homespun was threadbare in places, but his manner was gentle and courteous. He sat down opposite her and looked round him curiously. He touched the modern writing-table and sighed heavily, and a tear coursed down his furrowed cheek. The girl watched him. He did not speak to her, yet his whole manner suggested that he had something on his mind. 
The doctor's bell rang out, and she knew he was waiting for another patient. The old man rose, and with the same old-world dignity and courtesy, bowed himself out of the room. Immediately afterwards she heard the doctor's door close, and she presumed the queer stranger had gone in to consult him. She thought no more of the incident until dinner that night, when she suddenly said, "'What a dear that old man was who came to see you this afternoon, doctor!' "'What old man, my dear?' "'The old man with a long white beard. He came into the drawing-room, but when he heard your bell he went out. He looked exactly like a picture of an old patriarch.' The doctor looked puzzled. "'No one answering to that description came to see me this afternoon,' he said. "'But he went into your room,' she persisted. "'I heard the clock strike four as he left the room.' "'He never came in to me,' said the doctor with a smile. "'At four I saw Lady Mackleton to the door myself. "'She was anxious to get to Buchanan Street by a quarter past, "'as she was meeting a friend. "'I put her into her motor and closed the door myself.' "'I expect the old man got tired of waiting,' said Sheila vaguely. "'A great number of people are that,' said the doctor with a little chuckle, "'for he was the most popular practitioner in Glasgow. "'The doctor's house was very old.' New flats, ugly houses, shops had grown up around it, but in spite of modern innovation it still retained a certain amount of old-world charm. As Sheila went along the corridor to her room that night, she perceived a kilted figure in front of her. A gust of wind came from an open window, and she saw him shade his burning candle with his hand. He turned into a room known as a paneled room, and Sheila caught sight of a flowing beard. It was her visitor of the afternoon. It was a very guilty Sheila that entered her bedroom. The old man was no patient, but an inmate of the doctor's house. Perhaps a relative who lived there quietly, unknown to the outside world, a recluse, and she had seemed to spy into the affairs of her friends. She slept while the noise of the thundering city failed to keep her awake, and as she rose her heart sang, Staverdale, Staverdale, he would be with her at noon. There was a double hall to the big house, and the inner formed a comfortable and picturesque smoking-room, with its open grate and galleried stairway. Mrs. Chalmers was sitting there on a settee by the fire when she came down, ready to go to the station to meet Staverdale, and at the further end of the same settee sat the white-bearded old man. Sheila felt embarrassed and would have passed with a smile, but Mrs. Chalmers called her. "'You have plenty of time, dear. The doctor has ordered the car to take you to the station. It isn't around yet. Sit down by me until it comes.' With a little apologetic smile, the girl sat down between Mrs. Chalmers and the stranger. She felt horribly uncomfortable, for her hostess made no attempt to introduce her, and she was thankful when she heard the car at the door. All the way to the station, Sheila pondered over the matter. Could her friends be so heartless as to treat possibly a dependent relative in so churlish a manner? The thought disturbed her, but she was resolved to say nothing to Staverdale. The old man or his relations with her friends was not her business, and she, well, she was going to meet Staverdale. His train was to time. They had no need of words, for as their lips met they realized they had found each other at last. I had your letter, little woman, he said. I think I could read between the lines. You won't keep me waiting much longer, will you? I am ready when you want me, was her shy confession. For answer, he touched his breast pocket. I have a special license here, my darling. Will you marry me soon, next week? Her face was suffused with rosy blushes as she gave him the answer he so longed to hear. Dr. and Mrs. Chalmers greeted Staverdale warmly. "'My old room, I suppose?' he asked gaily. "'Yes, dear boy. The paneled room is reserved for you.' A curious shiver ran through Sheila. She scarcely knew why. It was the room that the old man had entered the night before. He was being turned out for Staverdale. They spent the evening quietly, and Sheila went upstairs with Mrs. Chalmers. Again she saw the white-bearded man, and again she watched him enter the paneled room. She felt her heart beat rapidly, but her hostess seemed unconcerned. "'Good night. Sleep well, dear,' she said, kissing her, and crossed the corridor and put her hand on the panel door. "'I hope Mary remembered to light the fire in here,' she went on brightly. "'The room was quite chilly when I went in here earlier in the day.' Sheila watched her in open-mouthed amazement. Mrs. Chalmers went straight into the room, the room the old man had entered only a few seconds before, and she heard her poking the fire. Her voice came through the door. "'Sheila, my dear, have you a large lump of coal to spare in your room? They are all such small pieces here.' Mechanically, Sheila lifted a piece out with the tongs and carried it on a shovel, but she hesitated at the door a second before she entered the room. It was large, with old-fashioned eighteenth-century furniture, and the fire blazed merrily. She looked around it. There, on a chair, lay a pile of neatly folded clothes. A pair of brogues with the tawls torn were underneath, while sitting upright in the very center of the huge four-poster 
was the little old man. He wore a nightcap and was eating from a bowl from which the steam rose. Sheila rubbed her eyes. Why was the stranger there? Why didn't Mrs. Chalmers notice him? The old man nodded pleasantly and quickly. The girl crossed to the other room, but before she could reach her, Mrs. Chalmers was standing by the bed and smoothing the sheets. Sheets that had never been rumpled with wear, and the bed was empty. Sheila went to her bedroom in a thoughtful mood. She knew now that her power of sight was no unmixed blessing. She could foresee no rest from psychic labors. In Great Glasgow, a city of work and toil, she hardly expected to meet with the unseen. The house stood in a little cul-de-sac off Bath Street. The roar of Sauchi Hall Street was near at hand. The lights were bright outside. All was modernity and rush, yet, within sound of the city, vision had come to her, the meaning of which was as yet obscured. Out of strange dream, began Stavardale at breakfast next morning, I seemed to see an old man with a long, but Sheila heard no more. She rose and left the table, and her heart felt sick within her. All day she was nervous and irritable. She couldn't tell why, but the presence of the affable, white-bearded old man harassed her. As she sat down at dinner that night, she looked up suddenly. There opposite her sat the old man. He was unfolding his napkin, and when he had finished, he helped himself liberally from a decanter at his elbow. A basin of soup stood in front of him. He seasoned it well and began to eat. Sheila gazed with horror at the figure, and Dr. Commerce noticed. He followed the direction of her eyes. "'Why, Madeline,' he said to his wife, "'are you expecting a visitor tonight?' "'No, why?' "'See, an extra cover has been set.' "'How careless,' she replied. And then to the maid, "'Did you set the table tonight, Hoskins?' "'Yes, ma'am. It was quite an accident. I can't think how I came to make such a mistake. I'm very sorry.' But although she removed the knives and forks and put the glasses on the sideboard, when Sheila looked again, the old man was still in his place enjoying his dinner. He was two courses ahead of the others. That night, DeWraith appeared in the drawing-room. He seemed to enjoy the music and sat gently nodding his head in quiet appreciation. Then he rose and crossed to Sheila, and so she sat, her lover on one side and an unknown Wraith on the other. The situation was incongruous. She felt the wild desire to laugh aloud. Stafferdale bent to her. "'What is the matter, dear one?' he asked. "'You look tired, anxious. Thank God I shall soon have the right to take care of you altogether.' Stab, she whispered. "'That dream you spoke of, the old man?' But the figure on her left turned slightly and met her gaze, and she found she was unable to say what she intended, and passed it off with a smile. The next afternoon she watched the old man descend the broad stairs in the hall. As he reached the open door, the doctor appeared and stared at the unbidden guest for a moment. Sheila saw him hesitate for a second, and then stride after him, but the old man had reached the door and had swung to behind him. "'You saw?' she asked. "'Yes. Of all the confounded impertinence. Excuse me, my dear, but did you see? He walked down my stairs as if they belonged to him, and let himself out of my front door, as if he owned the whole place. Who the deuce is he? Why, my dear, isn't he the same man that was in the drawing-room with you one day? Yes. Who is he? Do you know? Doctor, hesitatingly, I'm glad you have seen him, too, for the matter has been troubling me greatly. As a matter of fact, he has sat with us at dinner for the last few nights. The doctor looked at her as if she had gone mad. My dear Sheila, he exploded, don't bring all your psychic stuff and nonsense here. The man's real enough. He's not, doctor. I don't know who he is, but he is certainly not human. The doctor was clearly a disbeliever. But even his calm was shaken that afternoon, for his wife came in to him with an alarmed expression. My dear, she said, I'm sorry to disturb you, but I really feel rather nervous. A white-bearded gentleman has gone into the paneled room. I saw him go down the corridor, but although I called to him, he took no notice. I distinctly saw him go into the room, yet when I followed him a few seconds later, the room was empty. The doctor, with angry mutterings, went upstairs, but although he searched everywhere, he could find not the slightest trace of the stranger. Then Staverdale came in. Hello, he said. I see you have a visitor. Who's a patriarchal old chap in the library? He seems to be making himself very much at home among the books there. The doctor made no reply. The whole situation annoyed him. He was material himself, and he did not like to have his theory of an entirely material world shaken like this. Then followed a period of unrest for the four in that house. Every day they caught a glimpse of the stranger in one part of the house or another. He sat with them at dinner. He listened to the music afterwards. Staverdale saw him in his bed. But whenever they tried to touch him, he melted into nothingness and vanished. I don't like it at all, cried Mrs. Chalmers. My dear, 
You're to be married at the end of next week. Won't you try and settle us here first? That old man is on my nerves. I know he seems quiet and peaceable, but I well. The truth is, I'm not used to ghosts, and I don't like it. She looked comforted, the motherly woman. I'm sure his presence is no menace to any of us, she said. Try not to bother about it. I am sure sooner or later I shall find a solution to the mystery. Several times Sheila tried to get into communication with a stranger, but he never uttered a word, and when she addressed him he just faded from sight. Faded is the only word to describe how he vanished. His appearance became lighter and lighter until he looked like a figure of vapor, transparent and ethereal. Sheila seemed unable to get to the bottom of the mystery. The old man was certainly harmless. He had no sinister effect upon anyone in the house, yet his presence caused a vague feeling of disquiet. They could feel his presence even when they could not see him, and Mrs. Chalmers became quite hysterical. It was her first introduction to the unreal. Sheila was walking up the broad stairway when she became aware that the old man was in front of her. She followed him down the corridor, and he vanished into the paneled room. Hardly realizing what she was doing, she followed him in. As she entered, she was in time to see him disappear behind a piece of wainscoting that swung to after him. Delighted with her discovery, she hurried downstairs and told her story to the others. "'Let's go up at once,' said Staverdale eagerly. "'We must see if we can find a hidden door there.' They tapped on the wall. It certainly emitted a hollow sound, but the secret spring was very cleverly hidden. The carving represented a huge vine laden with fruit, and Sheila noticed the one grape seemed larger, fuller than the rest. "'Push that one,' she said excitedly. But although he pressed it, turned it to the right and turned it to the left, nothing happened. "'Can you pull it out?' she asked at last. He obeyed her instructions. The carved wooden fruit moved ever so slightly, and then slowly, the panel swung back and left revealed a small stairway. "'Get some candles quickly,' cried Staverdale, and then slowly and cautiously the others followed him, Mrs. Chalmers nervously bringing up the rear, having first carefully propped the secret door open with a chair in case of accidents, as she explained. The stairway was long and steep, and at the bottom a bolted door met their gaze. But even as Staverdale came forward and put a hand to unfasten it, the stranger mysteriously appeared, and lo, the door was open wide. Courteously he bowed the little party through. They found they were in a very tiny room, so small that it might once have been a priest hole. There was neither window nor grating to be seen, yet the air was pleasantly fresh. It was quite empty except for a large chest that stood in one corner. Tears fell down the furrowed cheek of the old man as he silently pointed to it. Staverdale tried to open it, but it was heavily bolted, and its locks were of a mechanism that needed careful manipulation. "'We must carry it upstairs,' he said, and with a smile. It seemed almost a relief the old man faded away. It was a difficult task to get the heavy chest up the narrow stairway, but they managed it, and at last, with the patience and care, the lid was open. They clustered round the ancient chest, eager to see the contents. Tenderly, Sheila lifted out a silken dress, a hoop dress of flowered silk, that almost crumbled to pieces at a touch. Its style was of more than a century ago. Underneath it were more dresses, suits, and a jeweled sword, a dueling sword with rusty stains on its blade, stains that told an ominous story. At the bottom of the chest, a wonderful treasure was displayed. Plate of gold heavily chased came into sight, and on each piece was engraved a coat of arms, a broken key surmounted by a coronet. Piece by piece the plate was lifted out until forty pieces of solid gold were exposed to view. "'Where can it have come from?' said Mrs. Chalmers. But Sheila found a clue, and faded writing on the lid of the box itself was scrawled. "'All this is the property of Strathbala. I hide it while there is still time. F. McGee, Anna Domini, 1801.' "'Look, look!' she cried eagerly. Mrs. Chalmers read it uncomprehendingly, still she repeated, "'Whatever does it mean?' "'It means we have stumbled on some property of the Strathbola,' said her husband. "'And mighty queer it is to think that we have lived here over thirty years, "'and yet had no suspicion of that hiding place.' "'How did it ever get here?' asked his wife. "'Ah, that is a mystery you shall never solve,' he replied. "'But Sheila thought differently. "'We shall have to communicate with the present laird of Strathbola,' she said. "'Do you know anything about him, doctor?' "'Yes, his place is quite near Aberfeldy. "'He had only recently come into the estates.' All that day they were eagerly speculating upon the mystery, and wondered what part in the long-forgotten past the white-bearded old man had played. The stranger did not appear at dinner that night, and Sheila felt that he knew his mission was accomplished. 
Early next day, Trapola came in person to see the doctor. In the presence of Dr. Mrs. Chalmers and Straverdale, Sheila told her story. She spoke of the haunting of the house by the old man, and of the subsequent finding of the chest. The man's eyes glowed. He looked at the writing on the chest. F. McGee, he murmured. Poor, faithful old Fergus McGinty. Why? You know the initials? asked the doctor in surprise. Yes, and now I will tell you my story. Really, I should have told it first, for had you but known, yours is the sequel. This is the famous Strathbola plate, doctor, though perhaps you have never heard of it. The story was told me by my grandfather, for he knew and loved Fergus McGinty well, although he was still a lad when the old man died. When did he die? asked Sheila. In 1801. My grandfather was then about six. You know, he died in 1888, and had lived nearly a century. Well, well, the story goes back a long way. It was about 1740 that Fergus McGinty first entered the service of the Strathbolas. He was, well, factor we should call him today, but he was far more than that. He was confidential friend as well. Neil Strathbola, the young heir to the estates, was his dearest charge, and later, when he grew up, and became restless and wanted to go to London, it was Fergus McGinty who accompanied him there. He valeted him, looked after him, lent him money when he needed it, in fact, was to him a second father. And to the young man's credit, be it said, he trusted him and loved him. Young Strathbola got mixed up with a very fast set. He gambled, fought, and became entangled with a worthless woman, whom he married. In 1796, I think it was, he fought a duel and killed his adversary, and for a time he had to leave the country. He sent his wife and small son, my grandfather, to Scotland, and with Fergus McGinty went to Holland. The man stopped for a moment and looked at the jeweled sword that lay open on the table. Probably that is why the very sword that was used in the faithful quarrel he went on dreamily. At any rate, after that everything seemed to go wrong for him, and he returned to Scotland in 1799, a ruined man. His father was dead, and he had heavily mortgaged the estates. He hardly had enough money left to buy the barest necessities of life. Nothing was left but the famous gold plate, the very plate on the table yonder, that was given to the family by James V. It was Fergus McGinty who hid the plate from the hungry creditors who came to see what they could get. They burst into the house at Aberfeldy and seized everything they could lay hands upon. The house was completely sacked and afterwards burned, and Neil Strathbola and his son escaped by the aid of a loyal Fergus. All in the company in the room were listening to the story with rapt attention. They were being carried into the past ages, and they could picture the stirring deeds that were performed in the good old days. Well, Neil died shortly afterwards, I regret to say it, of delirium tremens. His wife had predeceased him, and Fergus McGinty, now an old man, took charge of the little son. And it was that son, my grandfather, from whom I learned the story. Fergus went back to the ruined house, and dug up the gold plate, which he had buried, and took it to Glasgow. There he hid it in what he considered was a safer place, and he told my grandfather that it was kept safe for him, and that one day he would show him his wonderful possessions. Unfortunately, that day never came. He was overheard talking about it by a servant, and it was repeated to the creditors of the estates, that it was Fergus McGinty who had done them out of what they considered their just due. Six men came to the little cottage where Fergus and my grandfather were living, and demanded to know the hiding place of the plate. He refused. It is safe, he cried boldly. It is in trust for my little master here. No one shall ever possess it but a Strathbola. Brutally he was knocked down, and a Campbell stood over him and menaced him. Tell us where it is, he demanded, but to neither cajolery nor threats, menace or promise, would the old man yield. It belongs to Strathbola, he said, and Strathbola's it shall remain. But the men of those days paid little attention to law and order. In front of my grandfather, a wee, scared bairn, they cut Fergus McGinty's tongue from his mouth. With a wild oath, the Campbell stabbed him through the heart. If we are not to benefit, then neither shall the Strathbola. And they left a bleeding body, over which a poor little terrified child wept. Many times my grandfather has described the hideous scene, for it remained vivid in his mind all his life. He told me he scarcely realized what had happened, but suddenly the dead Fergus raised himself up, and from his tongueless, bleeding mouth came the words, One day Strathbola shall come into its own. The child saw no more, for he was found later fainting on the dead body of his friend. There is little more to tell. He was taken care of by a distant relative who left him his fortune. 
He paid off all his father's debts and rebuilt the old house, the very one I now possess. He made many attempts to discover the missing plate, but the secret was locked in the heart of his faithful Fergus, Fergus who had lost his life and lost his tongue in the service of the Strathbola. "'It's wonderful,' said Sheila, and Stavardil saw the tears in her eyes. My grandfather was convinced that one day the secret of the hidden treasure would be revealed, but neither my father nor I ever thought we would see the plate again. Then it was Fergus McGinty who told the secret, said Sheila. It was Fergus McGinty who invited us here. Poor dumb Fergus. Did your grandfather ever describe him? asked the doctor. Often, replied Strathbola. He was a shortish man, well built, but not stout. His eyes were blue, pale, but of a piercing brilliancy, and his hair was white while his long white beard hung down well past his waist. "'The stranger!' ejaculated Mrs. Chalmers, and even as she spoke to Wraith appeared at the side of Strathbola. He raised one hand, as if in benediction, and with a smile of infinite tenderness faded away into nothingness. Sheila and Stavardale were married on the following Saturday. In the large dining-room of the Chalmers' house the simple Scottish ceremony was performed. The house they found, upon inquiry, was once tenanted by certain John McKinty. What relation he was to Fergus they never knew, but the secret had been well kept. As a happy pair left the house for the car that was to take them to Ken Craig, where their honeymoon was to be spent, the wraith of Fergus McGinty followed them. Sheila saw him and smiled, and as she did so a wonderful expression of peace came on the old face, and his features were lit up with that happiness. Staverdale tucked his arm through hers as the car drove off. "'Happy little one,' he asked. "'Oh, so happy!' And as he bent to kiss her, don't see anything during our honeymoon, my dearest. Do have a perfect holiday. I'll try, she said quietly, but her expression was thoughtfully serious, and he realized that her power of sight was a gift, a gift that she could not shake on and off at will. But he loved her and was content. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.